Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. All right, with that, we're going to continue our series today. Uh, Hidden Grace, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Uh, Man, I just love the story of Joseph. It's one of the most encouraging stories in the Bible for me, and it should be for you too, because we don't have the end of your story. We don't have the end of my story, but we do have the end of Joseph's story, and we see that all that he suffered led to a place where God redeemed and restored his life and brought about these amazing, glorious purposes in his life that there's no way Joseph could have foreseen that. And there's no way you and I can foresee what God's doing Uh, in our hearts and lives as well. The scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so uh, we know uh, the end of Joseph's story. Let us stand in for your story and encourage you that uh, all things are working and will work for the good in your life as well. So the title of today's message is Temptations at Potiphar's House, Part 2. There's actually three temptations that Joseph faced in Potiphar's house. Last week, we looked at the first one. Uh, the temptation of power and influence. And today we're going to look at this idea, probably the most obvious temptation uh, in this part of the story, and that is sexual temptation. So let's jump into the story here. Uh, I'm going to dive into actually verse uh, 6 in Genesis 39, and we're going to read through verse 23. So Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and he's purchased by Potiphar, who's like the captain of the armed forces of Egypt. He's a very powerful man. And we pick up the story as Joseph is uh, in his house. Verse six. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for my help, for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her, until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge 
of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you were with Joseph and we thank you that you are with us. The great promise of the gospel is when Jesus said, surely I am with you always. Comfort our hearts with that. And also, I pray that you would show that promise to be true as we gather around your word today, that you would fill us up, that your, your withness, your nearness to us today would cause us to be filled with your spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with hope, encouragement, and life as we walk out our stories. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So early Genesis, uh, in the book of Genesis, we have miracles, visions, angelic appearances, voices speaking from heaven. End of Genesis, you know, the early part of Joseph's story, nothing. God isn't even mentioned in the early part of Joseph's story when he's being betrayed by his brothers and when he's thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. It just seems like God's activity just flatlines. But as we've talked about multiple times in this series, God's silence is not absence. And as Tim Keller said, often when God seems the most hidden, he's working the most for us. And finally, here in Genesis 39, finally, we see the Lord mentioned when it says in verse 2, and it mentions the same thing two more times in the text that we read today, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, you wouldn't know that by looking at Genesis 37 where God isn't mentioned, but as we look at what was happening in Joseph's sufferings and where God was leading Joseph and how God was eventually going to bring Joseph among the king's prisoners where he would end up in the palace interpreting Pharaoh's dream and become the savior of his family and of the nation, we see that the Lord was with Joseph in his sufferings. That under the surface, God had hidden plans that he was working out, even in the most mundane, trivial things. So in Genesis 37, we saw God working in Joseph's sufferings. Here in Genesis 39, we see God working in Joseph's temptations. Last week, we looked at the temptation of power and influence. Joseph has come into this center of power as Potiphar is this very powerful man, you know, the, the captain of the king's army. And we see how Potiphar's wife uh, handled power and influence versus how Joseph handled power and influence. They're both in this place of authority and influence, but Potiphar's wife used her, her power and influence to fill her own needs. She used her power and influence selfishly to satisfy her own appetites. Joseph used power and influence, though, to bless others. Potiphar's house was blessed and successful, never more blessed and successful than it was under Joseph's care. And so we have a contrast to see how both of them dealt with the temptation of power and influence and how God was glorified in Joseph's life as he used his power, his influence, his giftings to bless others. So I mentioned there's three temptations here uh, at Potiphar's house. You have this power temptation, and then you have today's topic, sexual temptation, which is probably the most obvious temptation of all in this story. And then next week, we're going to look at uh, what we're going to call the hardest temptation of all that Joseph faced. <clears throat> but let's look at the most obvious temptation here in this story, sexual temptation. Though the Bible talks as much about money and power as it does about sex, this topic, sex, looms very large in this story for obvious reasons. 
uh, Potiphar's wife comes to him. And as I said last week, uh, even though it says here in the ESV, she says, come to bed with me. It's actually two Hebrew words and it's very emphatic. Um, It's almost like onomatopoeia. She says, sex now. It's like she she has this urgency to, to fill this, this, uh, the sexual desire that she has. And, you know, Joseph, was it say? He's well-built and handsome. And she, not only, this is not an impulsive thing that, you know, sort of a breakdown of, of uh, momentary weakness that she has one day. She went after him day after day after day. And as I said last week, uh, you know, the devil doesn't send him ugly, right? I'm sure this was, te- this was tempting for Joseph. She was likely a very beautiful woman. Potiphar's a powerful man and probably had his pick of the lot. And so you can probably assume she's a very beautiful woman who has all the resources of the wealth of Egypt to beautify herself. And so this is a very tempting thing. And Joseph calls her request to have sex with him wicked and a sin. Now, why would he say that? Why would he use those words? Uh, you know, I think maybe the obvious answer is, well, because she's married to somebody else. You don't want to be a homewrecker and, you know, uh, uh, you don't want to break up the marriage. It's just wrong to, you know, pursue any kind of relationship, let alone a sexual, uh, you know, fling with somebody who's married to somebody else. Now, biblically speaking, that's correct. That is wrong to uh, pursue a sexual relationship with someone who's married to someone else. But it's not only wrong because she's married to somebody else. It's also wrong because she's not married to Joseph. Now, the best place to get a grasp on the biblical sexual ethic in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul the Apostle actually has some comments that I think come to bear on this story that we're looking at in Joseph's life. There he lays out the principle of the gospel's approach to sex. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. And that's what we see Joseph doing in this story, don't we? He's he's fleeing. And guys, sometimes that's the answer when it comes to sexual temptation. Joseph isn't sitting there like analyzing. Uh, should I do, let me weigh the pros and cons to this? Should I do this? Should I not do this? What should I? He runs. He turns and runs like like he's on. Uh, you know, I've been in Africa. You know, in the. Uh, in the Serengeti Plains, when you have thousands of animals and a lion comes walking by, and then you see all the other animals staring at that lion, and they just turn and run. And that's what Paul's saying. Like, like a lion coming to tear you apart, guys, just turn and run. And that's what Joseph does. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is not only talking about adultery here, having sex outside of marriage, he's talking about two people who are not married to one another or anyone else. And he's saying sex in that context is still wrong and damaging. Why? Here's why. Sex was designed by God. Remember, sex is God's idea. It's not dirty, right? It's created, it can be dirty, but it was created by God for a beautiful, glorious purpose. Sex was designed by God to create what Paul here calls one flesh. What does that mean? I'm going to borrow uh, some thoughts from um, commentary writer Anthony Thistleton here. I think he's right on the mark when he, when he says this. When Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, 
and he takes it to cover all sexual intercourse, instead of devaluing sex, the very opposite comes about. Paul is far ahead of first century cultural assumptions when he perceives that the sex act should be one of complete self-commitment that involves the whole person, not merely the manipulation of body parts. In the context, Paul is saying, you must only give yourself to the one to whom you completely belong. Great thoughts. Sex is God's way for us to say to someone else that we love, I belong absolutely, completely, and exclusively to you in every way, socially, economically, legally, spiritually, emotionally, I belong to you. Paul is saying that physical intimacy and oneness is an expression of what you might call whole life intimacy and oneness. That is, if physical sexual union is just an expression of what you've done with your whole life, then sex deepens trust and intimacy. It doesn't destroy it. But if you have sex outside of the marriage covenant, then what you're saying is, I want physical oneness, but I don't want whole life oneness. You're saying, I want your body, but I don't want you. Or I want your body, but I don't want to fully give myself to you. I still want to belong to me, not you. When the Bible talks about sexual integrity, it teaches this, to integrate your body with the rest of your life. If you've given your whole life to someone, then you can give your whole body. If you haven't given your whole life, then don't give your whole body. Don't compartmentalize these things. They're all one. Tim Keller says, sex is God's invention for complete life entrustment. And here's how interconnected these things are. If you use sex just for the satisfaction of the moment, you actually weaken your ability to give full, complete life entrustment to someone later on. Paul is saying that sexual oneness without life oneness is like poison to one's life and relationships. Now there is healing, but it inflicts wounds on the soul and the heart. That's why Joseph recoiled from it and ran from it. It wasn't because it wasn't pleasurable. I'm sure it was tempting. I'm sure it was pleasurable. But Joseph ran because there was a greater pleasure at stake if he gave into this temptation. That's why Paul said to flee from it. He's not trying to take away your fun. He's saying your joy, your ultimate joy is at stake here. The future joy of your relationships is at stake here. We've recently given a definition of kind of discussed a, what's a biblical definition of manhood uh, at, our, at our men's gathering. You know, men by grace accept responsibility, reject passivity, lead courageously, and live for ultimate delights. Uh, one of the ways, as I've talked with my sons about it, is we live for God's rewards. In other words, men, mature men, delay pleasure for a greater pleasure later on. And I think sex is a great context to talk about that, right? Because our, our society says, get it now, and yet you end up paying later, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, or relationally. But a mature man who's following Jesus says, I'm going to delay pleasure and, and wait for sexual pleasure until the marriage bed. Uh, so I'm living for a greater delight, a greater joy. Uh, uh, I'm living for uh, a greater reward. 
we're, and I'm delaying my, my pleasure. That's, that's what mature people do. I mean, if you offer a, if you offer a five-year-old uh, kid $5 today or a million dollars when they're 21, like a hundred out of a hundred five-year-old kids will take the five bucks now because immaturity is not able to delay pleasure. Joseph is a mature man. Joseph is a godly man. And we see him living for ultimate delight when he says, I, I can't do it. I won't do it. Now, let me pause here before I move on with this topic, because whenever you're talking about this topic, there's certainly, uh, you know, we all have a lot of history um, when it comes to this topic of sex. And, and so I think one of the responses to this message that I want to just answer right now before we go too far is this idea that says, I feel guilty. I've messed up. Now, if you've had sex outside of marriage, let me remind you that there is forgiveness, that the Bible says you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus will defend you before the Father. In other words, you won't be judged for that sin if you trust in Christ because he took the blame for you. God won't punish the same sin twice. And if Jesus was already punished for your sins on the cross, why would God punish you as well? So there's forgiveness, there's freedom. There's no condemnation in Christ. And yet, we do need to walk through that, don't we? We need to walk through the, the pressure of that, that that memory puts on our hearts. But just know, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Paul's not trying to make you feel guilty in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm trying to persuade you to think of sex in a different way than you might think right now. And definitely a different way than the Western world thinks about it. I mean, it's nothing to the world. It's like eating a candy bar or playing a video game. It's just like, hey, let's, hey, let's have sex. That'd be fun. Uh, you know, it's like an appetite for food. I, I want to eat. You want to eat? Let's go to McDonald's. Well, I, I, hey, I want to have sex. You want to have sex? Let's just fulfill this appetite. And it's just, it, it's been devalued and degraded so low in the Western world. I mean, just look at our modern music. You know, the song Moves Like Jagger by Maroon 5. You know, you have this woman, uh, I think it's Christina Aguilera, singing in the, in the bridge. If I share my secret, you're going to have to keep it. No one else can see this. And so she's talking about in the context of having this sexual moment with this guy. And she's like, hey, I'll, I'll kind of let you in on a secret as to what, you know, brings me pleasure. But you can't tell anybody. And it's just like, it's so tragic to see that she's willing to give her this very intimate part of herself away in this moment for this high, you know, to, for this guy to experience this high and her to have this sort of, you know, moment of intoxication with sexual pleasure, but it's just, it's just so degraded and devalued, something that God has made beautiful and holy and has taken it outside of God's purpose for it. The song Bang Bang by Ariana Grande. I remember I used to make volleyball videos for, uh, for my daughter, Grace's team. And, and I remember um, uh, this song was popular at the time. Uh, and <laughs> I was going to use this as a background track on, on the highlight video. And I finally like listened to the lyrics and I was like, oh my gosh, this is rated R. Uh, bang, bang by Ariana Grande. But just listen to how, how cheap sex is in this song. She got a body like an hourglass, but I can give it to you all the time. She got a booty like a Cadillac, but I can send you into overdrive. By the way, this is you know, about 10 years ago when like every pop song needed to have the word booty in it. Bang, bang. There goes your heart. I know you want it. Back, back seat of my car. I'll let you have it. Oh, it's just so sad, so tragic that sex has, has been reduced to, to this low-grade experience. Such little value. So 
this topic of sex cuts right across the grain of how people think about sex in America. But as you hear this message, I want you to be open-minded to the biblical view of it, the biblical ethic of it. I want you to think about integrating your body with your life. Now, maybe you're sitting here going, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous and archaic. I can't take something like this seriously. I remember talking to a, uh, a not yet Christian friend of mine when I was back in school. And I told him that, you know, as Christians, we don't practice sex outside of marriage. He's like, he couldn't believe it. He, he couldn't conceive of the thought that that would be sinful or wrong in any way. And I, I think culture thinks like that today. It's just this conversation is stupid. This whole idea of restraining yourself sexually, why would you do that? This is ancient, prudish, apple pie in the sky type of thinking. Maybe it's even oppressive. Now, wait a minute. I want to ask you a question. Do you trust God? Do you trust the Father's heart? If you do, then you must trust his commandment in this area and that he has your best interests in mind and that it's your joy that is at stake. And the only way we can truly obey God is number one, to trust who he is and number two, to trust that his commandment leads to joy, to trust the heart of the one behind the commandment. Imagine if you started thinking about God's commands that way. A few years back, I decided I'm going to start thinking about God's commands in a way that Everything that he commands me to do is for my ultimate joy because I trust him and I know his character. This week in our community group at my house, we were looking at Psalm 119, 138, where David writes, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. I love it. He's saying, I love your commands so much because you are trustworthy. I mean, who, who says that anymore about God's commands and rules? Uh, in another scripture, it says, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, that he may teach us of his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So there you have a follower of God going, I can't wait to go to church so I can be told what to do by God. I mean, who thinks, of, who thinks that way today in the Western world? We want autonomy. We, we want the sovereignty of self. And here you have the psalmist, you have David submitting himself to God's way because he trusts in the heart of his father. The motivation David gives for wanting to obey God is that he understands the character of God. He trusts the heart behind the commandment. He believes that God has his best interests in mind and therefore believes that to disobey is to forfeit his joy. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, perhaps one of the greatest uh, preachers and theologians America has produced back in the Great Awakening, taught the idea that God designed all of us to be motivated by seeking pleasure. And that whether you're a sinner knocking on the door of a whorehouse or a Christian reading your Bible, we all actually ultimately seek joy. And Jonathan Edwards makes the argument that a Christian should not deny this instinct to seek joy and pleasure, but to seek our pleasure in God. Therefore, the only difference between a Christian and someone who rejects uh, God is to seek the pleasures of sin in the wrong place. It's, it's, it, the difference is between a Christian and a not yet Christian is where we're looking for pleasure. John Piper calls this idea Christian hedonism. You know what hedonism, in, hedonism is, right? It's, um, it's an approach to life that focuses solely on seeking pleasure. A Christian hedonist, therefore, teaches Piper, is someone whose approach to life is seeking pleasure in God. And there we get his famous quote, God is most glorified in us 
when we are most satisfied in him. Listen to David in Psalm 16. You make known the path of life to me. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That sounds like a guy who's being motivated by pleasure and joy. And we ought to be also. And that's what was motivating Joseph, getting back to the story now, to resist his temptation. Sin for Joseph would have been misguided joy. It would have been looking for joy and pleasure in the wrong place or forfeiting greater joy and pleasure. He would have been accepting and welcoming a lesser joy and a lesser pleasure and forfeiting the greater one. Now, for any of us to deny God's plan for our joy would be to claim that we know better than God. Claiming you know better than God would be like watching one second total of the entire Lord of the Rings series of movies and claiming to know what the movie is about more than the author. To claim that we know more than you know, J.R.R. Tolkien knows about the Lord of the Rings, uh, to claim that we know more than he does you know, if we only saw one second of, of the whole movie series. It'd be ridiculous to do that. Nobody would make that claim. And yet we do that all the time when we resist God's plan for our lives, God's plan for, for sex, God's plan for, uh, how, for relationships and how we would walk out our faith. Now, one of the things you often hear in America today, I just wanted to make this, I think it's a fascinating point. One of the things you hear in America today a lot is don't elevate your religion above other religions. Let's celebrate what all religions have in common. Okay, um, let's, you know, humor one another and do that. Let's celebrate for a moment what all religions have in common. Do you believe, do you realize that there's very few things that all major world religions have in common, and yet this is actually one of them, that you shouldn't have sex outside of whole life covenant and commitment? Now, can you just dismiss that? Do you realize how hard it is to get consensus on anything in all world religions? And this is something that all have consensus on? So can we really flippantly dismiss that? Oh, that's ridiculous. Give it some thought. Now, how does Joseph resist his temptation? Most people think of resisting sexual temptation this way, that self-control is a matter of the will. They think you look at your desires and simply suppress them. You suppress your sexual desires. You suppress your sinful desires in whatever area you're tempted by. But that's not what's happening here. Joseph is not looking inside to suppress his desire for Potiphar's wife. He's looking outside and enhancing his desire for God. In verse nine, he says, how can I sin against the Lord? How can I do this wicked thing against God? You see what he's doing? He's enhancing his God desire, and that sets in order all the other desires of his heart. Matthew Henry wrote this. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. You hear what he's saying there? If we focus on the joy of the Lord and make that the great joy of our lives, it puts our mouths out of taste for the lesser joys. So Joseph's ultimate argument is, it's a sin against God. King David said the same thing when, when he gave in to this sin and he was being restored in Psalm 51. He said, against you, you only, O God, have I sinned. And so in coming out of this sin 
And what healed him was enhancing his desire for God. And that he was able to see what he'd done clearly in light of raising his desire for God. It helped him see everything clearly. Overcoming sin and repenting of sin happened not when they looked inside and suppressed a sinful desire, but when they looked outside, both Joseph and David, and enhanced their desire for God. So here's how self-control works. Genesis also tells us the story of Jacob and Rachel. Jacob had to work seven years for her. Jacob, of course, Joseph's uh, father. And the Bible says in Genesis 29, 20, Jacob served Laban seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Why did everything seem like it was a few days? It says because of his love that he had for Rachel. Jacob had normal desires like you and me, a desire for rest, leisure, and vacation, but nothing was as great as his desire for Rachel. He had this one great overmastering desire and that put every other desire in its proper place in his life. Self-control is not the will suppressing the desires of the heart, but it's all the desires of the heart being reordered by a higher love. If you try to look within and suppress your desires, you won't actually be able to have self-control. And that's where, that's religion gone, gone wrong. That's where religion has failed people. They simply look at it as, you know, this, this system of beliefs where you have to suppress your sinful desires, but there's no desire for God. There's no love of the grace and the, of God. And there's no, the, the power of the cross is not at work and it's not electrifying the heart. So you don't have an enhanced God desire. You simply have suppression. And that has an expiration date. And we've seen a lot of people uh, bail on their faith because of that legalistic, moralistic approach, but enhancing our desire for God. So if we try to look within and suppress our desires, we won't actually be able to have self-control. We have to allow our hearts to be reordered by that one great desire of which the psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. And we have something better than Joseph. There's another Joseph who lived in heaven with his father, like Joseph had at one time lived with his father. Like this Joseph, he was well-built and handsome. Like this Joseph, he was beautiful. But like this Joseph, he lost it. He lost that beauty. In Isaiah 53, it says, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. We're told that he was despised and rejected by men. We know why Joseph was despised and rejected. He was thrown out of Potiphar's house and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Isaiah 53 says, this, this suffering servant will come and be numbered among the transgressors. He'll bear the blame. And of course, our Joseph is Jesus. Isaiah 53 says he bore the sin of many. Jesus had many temptations too, and he fled from them. Why? Because we were the overmastering desire of his heart. We are Jesus, Rachel. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. 
Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross and scorned his shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? So he could rescue us, his church. We are his Rachel. When we begin to see that we are his beauty and passion, he'll become our beauty and passion. What do we really want in sex? Freud says spiritual longings are just frustrated sexual desires. But the Bible says sexual desires are just frustrated spiritual longings. Tim Keller, you need an ultimately beautiful person to give themselves to you and say, I find you beautiful and I give myself wholly to you. In the gospel, you have that. Single people often say, if I was happily married, I wouldn't have any problem with sexual temptation. But that is not true. I'm married and even good married love can't satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. If he is the greatest thing you desire, all other desires will be in the right place in your life and in your heart. Just some thoughts for how to apply this message. Number one, don't let the world explain sex to you. The world is lost without a compass. Let God explain it to you. And as we arrange our lives around God and his word and his plan for our lives and his plan around sex, sex actually works better and it's a much more fruitful, joyful, blessed part of our lives. Number two, Romans 12, one and two says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the gospel's invitation is change the way you think, change your definitions, change your value system, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You might actually say, correct the way you think, correct your definitions, correct your value system. Change what you believe will satisfy you. Change what you think is the source of your greatest joy. So let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's let, let's let the Bible speak to us. We don't speak to the Bible and change the Bible, which is a very popular thing to do today. We let the Bible speak to us and change us. And finally, number three, last thought for how we could apply this message. I want to encourage you to stir your spiritual affections. Find things that stir up your spiritual affections. And you know, I mean, a lot of these things are just ordinary and normal, like going to church, going to group. But I know like my wife likes to go for a run and listen to, you know, worship music and that stirs her spiritual affections. And uh, you know, some of you, maybe you get up in the morning with a cup of coffee. You know, I I look out over the river, uh, you know, here in in Clarksville where, you know, we have a place right, right on the Cumberland River and I look out and, you know, read the scriptures and it just stirs up my spiritual affection. Find things that stir up your spiritual affections and do that on repeat. Stir up, enhance your God desire. You know, let, let that one great overmastering desire take over your life and it will set in order all other desires in your life. And it'll help us to say no to ungodliness like it says in Titus 2, the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness. We need to See the grace of God. We need to be taken in with it. It needs to fill our hearts. And then it becomes the great motivator of our lives. It makes sense of everything else. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.